This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions today. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, I didn't expect to be here earlier in the week, uh, but due to the cancellation of our UConn game, uh, I'm here. Uh, Typically, I would be on the sideline working with the medical staff at UConn on a beautiful day like today. Uh, But our thoughts and prayers go out to all of our colleagues and, and friends in Florida who are getting ready for Hurricane Irma. Interesting thing I saw on TV today was the call going out that they need a thousand nurses, uh, really, to provide enough care for all of the elderly. I guess we're going to be in shelters and displaced. So it's one of those things that, if you're so inclined and can do it, I would urge you to do it. Uh, my experiences in Haiti have been nothing but rewarding and fulfilling. So if you're a nurse and you can possibly do that and get down there, because the aftermath is when you're going to be needed. Um, some someone should think about that. Um, today we're going to have uh, we have a great show planned. Even though I put it together kind of last minute, uh, sometimes the best things work out that way. So uh, we're going to be chatting here in the studio uh, with Jackie Prosick and Leah Moon, who are from Autism Families Connecticut. Uh, I've been impressed. This is uh, an interesting local charity uh, that works with young people and adults who are on the autism spectrum. And their approach to it is somewhat unique. So we're going to chat with them here in the studio. And then calling in a little later on is Dr. Alan Mayer. Dr. Mayer is a gynecologic oncologist who treats uh, gynecologic cancers. He is at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. And he has a very interesting career and is going to share some information about ovarian cancer with us. This is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. And it's one of those cancers that we don't often think about, uh, but the statistics are quite staggering. And 22,000 women are diagnosed every year in this country with ovarian cancer, and 14,000 die from ovarian cancer. On a personal note, it was ovarian cancer that took my mother's life in 2006. So I have a special connection uh, with Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. This day in medicine, back in 1896, Dr. Ludwig Rahn was a German physician at the Frankfurt City Hospital, and he performed the first successful suture of a human heart on a 22-year-old stabbing victim. It's very interesting because, I mean, more than 130 years ago, 120 years ago, and yet even today, you know, I was always taught in medical school that stab wounds to the heart have the potential for living as opposed to gunshot wounds to the heart. And here was the first time. Now, something that's commonly done in heart surgery is suturing the heart. And yet he was the first to do that in 1896. So we uh, remember him on this day of September 9th. Um, This week, my column in the Norwich Bulletin 
discussed uh, my colleague, Dr. Jeff Anderson. Uh, Dr. Anderson passed away this week. Uh, Dr. Anderson was the head team physician at the University of Connecticut. And the Yukon family, as well as the state of Connecticut, lost a great doc. He was the head team physician from 1993 to 2014. He was an intricate part of those championships in those years as head team physician. He died at the age of 53 suddenly. But he left that position and became the head of all of student health services at the university and also took the job as being the impartial administrator for Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association on their drug prevention and treatment program which is not easy to do in terms of balancing the efforts of really two divergent interests, um, but really trying to work with athletes in drug detection and monitoring. Uh, so uh, we are all saddened uh, by his loss uh, overall, and our medical profession has really lost a, a great, great physician. Uh, one other thing I'll mention and I wanted to talk about was post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD, it is the most common and most costly psychiatric disorder in the Veterans Administration system, and most of us are familiar with that. What's interesting is they're taking a drug called ketamine, and ketamine is an anesthetic. It's a dissociative anesthetic. It gives people this kind of separation of this detachment from their body. It's been used for depression for many years, but... They have found that there's good evidence that this may work in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm mentioning it because there are only two centers that have been approved to use this drug, the West Haven Veterans Hospital as well as Brook Army Hospital. So we are fortunate here in Connecticut to have access to a clinical trial in which we have good evidence that a drug may work for this condition that affects so many veterans. So we really, I want to encourage people, if you're treated at the VA or are entitled to VA benefits, suffer from this affliction, uh, you should be in touch with the folks down at the West Haven Veterans Administration. One last note, in New York City, they have raised the price of cigarettes to $13 a pack. Well, that's pretty interesting because it is single, the single most important most expensive state to buy cigarettes in. And it, it, I think it's just the city right now, but I think it's going to be the state. So I wanted to look and see if this type of legislation where we raise the price of cigarettes and cut down the number of places where you can buy cigarettes have any impact. And it does. Statistics have now shown us that by making it harder to smoke and putting these obstacles in the way, we are reducing the amount of smokers and smoking-related illnesses. So I think it's one of those cases. You know, it's sad. I always say it's sad when you have to legislate a good behavior and common sense. But nothing could show more common sense in terms of people who want to live longer and to quit smoking. And there are plenty of ways to stop smoking now. And you should contact your physician to either get in a program or on a medication that will help you. Next up, we're going to be chatting here in the studio with Leah Moon and Jackie Prosick about Autism Families Connecticut. Telephone numbers here are 860-522-9842.
1-800-966-9842. If you'd like to email me live on the radio, it's info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. That is the music of the Commodores, who will be at the Mohegan Sun tonight. So if you're so inclined, get right over, get a ticket, and you'll be seeing a great show. Tomorrow, we have our one-game playoff. Um, I will be at the Mohegan Sun for the Connecticut Sun WNBA playoff game. Uh, Come on down and say hello. It's interesting. So it's a one-game playoff, do or die, one game. And they are playing against the Phoenix Mercury, of whom we are very familiar with. Uh, in the form of Diana Taurasi. So anyhow, it, it'll be great. So get over to Mohegan Sun. Uh, next up, we're going to be chatting here. I have in the studio the folks from Autism Families Connecticut, Jackie Prosick and Leah Moon, who are the co-founders. What impressed me about this group is that many parents who have an autistic child start beating themselves up. And, and let me explain. It's you know, what did I do wrong? Uh, what went wrong? Did I take the wrong medication? Um, should I not have had a child vaccinated? There, there's all these, you know, this retrospective look of trying to find out what they did wrong. What this group does is look at the future, is how do we make the lives of people on the autism spectrum better? And I think that's such a great focus. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here. Um, can you tell our audience really how how you guys got started? Well, thanks, Dr. Alessi. I will uh, take that on. Um, you know, when Jack was uh, diagnosed with autism, I was living in Boston at the time, working at the Boston Globe, and I did a lot of investigating, going to conferences and learning about autism. But then as Jack got to be a little older, four or five years old, his mom called one day and said, all the other kids are going off into activities. We can't find an activity for Jack. He tried a few things. It just didn't work with his special needs. And so the more we thought about it, we looked around. I looked around the Boston area. There were some very interesting programs happening there. So we took a deep breath and decided that we saw a need and we would take action. And we formed Autism Families Connecticut in early 2010. I moved back from Boston to uh, work on this with Jackie uh, and uh, devote almost full time to this effort. It's a great effort. Uh, Jackie, you're the director of programming. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the programs that you offer these folks? Sure. So I'm the director of programming, but I am a mother. And um, so my son is 13 now and He's on the autism spectrum. He happens to be a twin. So I'm a mother first, and and they're always going to come first. Um, But what was so great about starting Autism Families Connecticut was melding that life um, that I wanted for my son into the entire community and um, really connecting with people around me because that, for me, is what it's all about, Um, not only as the mother but for my children and for my family as a whole. And meeting others like me just made life so much easier, um, made it better, and... um, So what we're doing, we started off with Playing on the Spectrum. It's a gym program. It's a recreation program. And we were looking for a way for the kids to get out on the weekend, get out of the house, and release that energy. They have a lot of energy. Um, And we wanted them to come together and have fun. 
And that's number one, because honestly, I think a life without fun is no good. And we need joy. And our guys deserve that. Um, they have autism, yes, and they are busy. They're in school. They're in therapies. Um, they work so hard to get through the day. And, you know, we looked at it and said, well, they get to have fun, too. Why not? I mean, it's an integral part of our lives. So um, number one, I'm probably going to say fun 10 times today, but number one is fun. Um, but number two is that recreation, movement, body, um, awareness, and and physical. You know, we want them to be moving, just like other kids playing soccer, playing lacrosse, um, doing dance lessons. You know, we wanted to incorporate that into everything that we did. So we started off with, I think, ages 3 to 13. So we started there. Um, and we we hired clinicians. We said, okay, we need experts. Who knows how to work with people with autism? We looked around the community, and man, there are fabulous people around who really know what they're doing. Um, when it comes to autism, it's very specific what these guys need. Um, and there are just wonderful people in the field. So we pulled them in and we've always used trained clinicians to run these programs. So our first program was playing on the spectrum. We moved into having a running club. We get on a track um, for eight weeks in the fall, eight weeks in the spring. And we walk, we run, we talk. It's a lot of fun. Um, we then expanded to, we said, you know what? There are teens who have autism. Okay. So let's have a Friday night teen night. Cause what do you do when you're a teen? You want to go out on Friday. Um, so we started fun. It's music based. It's active. We have pizza. Cause that's the other thing you need. Where do you do teen. it? Where is <laughs> um, that? So we're in Newington now. We have our own facility in, in Newington. Oh. We did, we did start around our kitchen table, our dining room sure. table. We started borrowing space. Uh, that's how we, we borrowed space from community centers. We kept all, everything in, my, in the car. Oh, yeah. um, but we were very fortunate a year and a half ago to actually get our own space in Newington. So it's wow. been wonderful. It's been great. And the track and the athletic facilities are all in Newington and as that, well? That one we use local high schools. So we still work with other um, you know, places in the area. But um, our teen night, yeah. So they come to our facility once a month on Fridays. And we have a great time. And then we said, oh, there are young adults with autism. Um, let's do something for them. So last winter, we started up a, another Friday night program for um, people ages 20 to 29 with autism. And um, similar, you know, but we're cooking and we're doing we and we recently went out bowling. So it's a lot of fun. You know, one of the things that also struck me about your program is it's not just autism children. Uh, mm -hmm. because people have to realize that this is not just a childhood right. problem. These yes. people become young adults and, and then adults. Yes. And, you know, it's everybody's basic need to want to contribute something to society. And, yes. um, you know, I hate to think that we're ignoring this population. So yes. what I like about your program is you, you have this continuous group, this continuous range of activities for young people. I guess yes. I have a question for you, Jackie, sure. and that is, so you said your child is one of twins. And yes. Is that common in autism? Because I have another colleague yes. who, and one child is on the spectrum, the other is not. Yes. Is, is that common? Have, have you so, seen that commonly? Yes, we have. And even in my community in West Hartford, I had several, I have several friends who have twins, boy, girl, and the boy has autism, and I can't explain it. It's the same with my uh, colleague who's an orthopedic surgeon um, uh, who's another part of the state. So what's next? I mean, 
one of the things I find most impressed about your program is that you seem to be looking at the next step. Okay, so you know you've had teens and young adults. Yes. What's the next step for your group? Well, you know, Dr. Lessie, along with addressing the needs of the individual with autism who also grows through a lifespan, as do their families. So we concentrate on families as well. We're making the families a focal point. We have a holiday party every December. We have beach days because families who are dealing with this and they're going to deal with it for a long time, they get to be, they get to feel isolated. Sometimes they lose their friends who have typical children. They just can't participate in the usual programs or activities that their friends are participating in. So they need to find community and we're helping we're helping with that. One example is a lot of times children with autism don't get invited to birthday parties. They just don't. They don't. Their friends, their classmates, they forget about them. And so we, we wondered, gee, maybe we should have birthday parties. And then we realized that the parents were connecting in with each other and they were having parties and inviting other kids from Autism Families Connecticut and, and on, yes, spontaneously mm. on their own and just building their own community, which is so important to the families. Well, I see that to be a big problem because, as we know, when you have a child who is either on the spectrum or has some other disability, it can often lead to divorce. Um, and that's a very stressful situation for family. So, again, I, I applaud you for looking at the entire family um, and, and not just the child who's affected. Um so do you have more plans down the future? What's going on? Now yeah. you have a facility. Uh, yeah, things are growing facility. fast. You know, one of the other things, you know, you were talking about how this is a lifelong disorder. And one of the other goals for us, and it's of great importance, is connecting with these people with autism um, who can come and volunteer for us, you know, or maybe work with us. Um, and we want to listen to them and hear what they have to say. You know, what do they think of our programs? What are they involved in in their life right now? What's important to them and what do they need? And so we've really been connecting with a lot of um, these people and they come and they volunteer and it's been great. So we're, I think getting not only um, in our community, but into the autism community, you know, what what is happening there? What do they need? You know, I wrote an article many years ago in the Norwich Bulletin about autism and particular sports that people on the spectrum would be best at. I've never had an article, even to this day, get so much attention from around the world. Mm. Um, uh, And I mean uh, Australia, Europe, people would Google and pick that up and want to know more about that. Uh, Because I think people have forgotten that also people who are on the spectrum can be very accomplished competitive athletes um, if yes. the right sport is chosen. Have, yes. have you seen some of your young people become involved in competitive sports? We've actually seen with the running club yeah. um, that they have picked up on that running. Right. I mean, right. you know, you've got endurance, you've got focus, and um, and they've started running some races. So it's really, I think running is a great option. It, it is. Uh, running, swimming, swimming. Um, martial arts mm. um, have been very helpful. Well, unfortunately, it's hard to be in a team sport. So yes. everybody likes to be on a team, a soccer team, and, and it seems to be very difficult uh, for someone on the spectrum to really gather that team thing. But yes. for an individual sport, uh, especially swimming, um, there have been uh, several com- very competitive swimmers involved in, uh, in who are on the spectrum. Can you tell our listeners, how do they get involved? How do they get in touch with you if yes. they want to be part of autism families, if they want to donate money? What do we need them to do? Well, we, we 
want to share as much information we can and get information out there. So thank you for today about our programs. They can go to our website, autismfamiliesct.org, and we have information there, and that's how you register. We have a very active Facebook and Twitter presence, so go on to Facebook, find Autism Families Connecticut. Uh, yeah, you know, you, when you talk about how can we grow and what are our plans, we have so many plans. We want to accommodate. There are over 9,000 children ages 3 to 21 alone with autism in Connecticut. We want to serve more of them. And as you well know, it, it, it comes down to funding. So we'd love to invite all of your listeners to our annual fundraiser, which is next uh, April 21st at the Simsbury Inn. That's how we raise the money to continue these programs and continue to grow. And you are a 501c3, as Abs- I read. Absolutely. So it is a tax-deductible donation. Absolutely. Yes. Ladies, thank you for your time today, and thank you for all you do. Thank, thank you. you so much for having us. Please keep in touch with me Absolutely. so I can announce things as they come up. Thank you. All right. Well. Next up, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Alan Mayer about gynecologic cancer. Specifically, we're going to talk about ovarian cancer since this is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And our next guest is uh, Dr. Alan Mayer, who has been kind enough to call in. I know he is on call. Uh, he is a gynecologic surgeon and specializing in oncology, cancer uh, in gynecology, in the field of gynecology. Uh, I have to tell you, I, I read uh, Dr. Mayer's uh, bio this morning um, before, as I was preparing for this, and uh, I'm not easily impressed, but I was especially impressed by his uh, bio, uh, not only for his years of service to this country in the United States Army, but uh, Dr. Mayer, I, I have to tell you, I, I'm looking at your bio here, and you did a fellowship in pelvic surgery at Kenyatta National Hospital in Nairobi, Kenya? That's correct, yes. And and then you worked in East Africa with the East African Flying Doctors. How did that all come about? Well, in the military, I was in, I've been in, I'm now retired from the military after 22 years. So in the military, you train for a few years, and then you pay back, and then you train for a few years after that, and then you pay back. So after my initial internship and residency at Walter Reed, I practiced for the Army in Nuremberg, Germany. And after I had completed my duty tour service, they wanted to retain me. So they asked me to come back to a medical center and teach. And I told them I wanted to do a fellowship first. And I wanted to spend time in Africa because there are surgical cases in Africa that you can learn from that you just don't see here, more difficult cases. And so they, the Army was kind enough to allow me that time. It was a year and a half that I spent in East Africa, and it, it was really life-changing. And actually, it was a prelude to a lot of the work that I do currently at St. Francis now. I lead mission trips to developing nations, mostly to Central America, to Bolivia, and to Ecuador. I teach medical students and residents about gynecologic surgery cases that they wouldn't see here in the United States. So it was actually a very good opportunity for me in my career. You know, I bring that up because, you know, a lot of young people who are thinking going into medicine, I mean, that's the reason to go. I mean, that is just that to be able to have such a varied experience and career as you have, uh, I think it really exemplifies 
why people go into medicine now and having those options. Um, uh, I've been very lucky, and, and, and I do think a career in medicine is fabulous. I love OBGYN. I love the patients that I treat and in the practice that I have here. I enjoyed my military career, my military practice that was obviously – uh, taking care of female, either female soldiers, active duty women, or the spouses of active duty service members, and and that's a real honor to be able to do that. And then I transitioned from re- from the military to a civilian practice here at St. Francis, and it's equally rewarding. OBGYN is a wonderful specialty. It's uh, great to hear. Oh, let's talk a little bit about ovarian cancer. Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Some of the statistics are fairly impressive in terms of. Uh, how much it affects people, women in the United States. It, it, it does, really. Uh, and I want to amend what you said. Actually, September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. Okay. So people think, oh, it's all ovarian cancer, but it really isn't. Gynecologic cancers include all cancers of all the reproductive organs, so in women specifically, of course, but uh, ovarian cancer, endometrial or uterine cancer, cervical cancer, vaginal cancer, and women can even get cancer of the tissues at the opening to the vagina, vulvar cancer. So a lot of patients don't realize that they can have ulcers or lesions that are malignancies on that skin outside the vagina. But the discussion really focuses on ovarian cancer most commonly because it is more lethal than the other GYN cancers. Ovarian cancer affects about 22,000 women in the United States annually. There are 14,000 women who we lose from that disease. It's the fifth leading uh, cancer cause of death in women in the United States behind breast cancer, lung cancer, colorectal and pancreatic cancers. So because of the uh, um, ultimate risk factor in ovarian cancer, we talk more about that. Why is it more lethal? I think it's because of several features. It develops very quickly, so patients are always surprised. They could have had a normal GYN examination three or four months before they meet me with very advanced uh, uh, ovarian cancer. So it, it moves quickly, and, I, and we always refer to it as the disease that whispers because the symptoms for ovarian cancer are very subtle. Um, that the symptoms are abdominal bloating or pelvic heaviness, uh, a fullness, your, your, your abdominal girth, your belt line increases without a weight, uh, a weight gain associated, irregular bleeding, gastrointestinal or genital urinary uh, changes. And so those symptoms, a lot of people have those symptoms for other reasons, and, and, and so they sort of pass them off. They say, oh, it's my inflammatory bowel disease, or, you know, it's, it's menopause. They, they kind of dismiss them. Even worse, practitioners dismiss them. So there is no screening test for ovarian cancer. That's the other barrier to diagnosis. Uh, there's no reliable screening test other than patients and their providers being aware of those symptoms and then investigating when they present. Well, you know, that it's scary to even think about that because we always tell people, okay, be careful, examine this, feel for a lump here, um, get this checked. And I think what you're saying is no matter what you do, uh, there's a good chance you're going to just find that you already have advanced ovarian cancer. Am I correct? Well, that isn't correct, so I'm glad you said that. Good, good. I think if you seek help early – and you get a pelvic examination, a gynecologic examination. If there is something there, then they do a 
an ultrasound or a CAT scan, I think there are investigations that can make the diagnosis. So w- what patients say to me all the time is, well, you know, how do I know if it's not my other complaints, my other illnesses? And I say to them, if the symptoms seem to be progressing and they last more than a week or two, then you need to have a, a thorough evaluation. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease, that may affect you for a couple days or constipation for a couple days, and then it, it resolves. If the symptoms abate, if they resolve, then I, I think it's less important. But the person you should speak to first would be your primary care physician or your gynecologist. Um, what about in families? Does it run in families now? We're hearing more and more about this. Are there genetics involved in ovarian cancer? That's actually the biggest risk factor for ovarian cancer. Um, the, the mean age for ovarian cancer is in the 60s, but many uh, women present to me with family histories that are that are very concerning for a malignancy, meaning they, they associated malignancies or breast cancer, colon cancer, ovarian or endometrial uterine cancers. And so if you have a personal history of breast or colon or you have a family member with any of those uh, other related cancers, then I think you need to alert your doctor, especially if there are uh, two or more family members that are affected by those cancers if they affect more than one generation in your family, an aunt and then a cousin um, or a, a grandparent and a, 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 an aunt, and then especially if, they're under, if the affected family member is under age 50. That would be a red flag for all of us. Are there people – well, I know there are people, but are you hearing more and more about women who want to have elective ophorectomies because of the family history and the so, fear of having ovarian cancer? One of the uh, features that I'm very proud of over the past two decades of practice is that the incidence of ovarian cancer is on the decline. And um, years ago, I would have said there were 25,000 new women affected annually, and now it's, it's down to below 22,000. And I think that's because we can identify those women who are at high risk, women who have genetic uh, factors that would place them at, uh, instead of the 1% to 2% baseline uh, uh, risk of ovarian cancer for the general population up to as high a risk as 25 or 50 percent risk of ovarian cancer. And then we can offer them uh, uh, preventive steps. Uh, you can undergo uh, uh, tubal ligation or removal of the ovaries and tubes. You can have uh, oral contraceptive use that would delay or prevent ovarian cancer. So risk reduction surgery has allowed us to decrease the incidence of ovarian cancer in the United States. Uh, That's fascinating. Uh, Dr. Mayer, we're going to take a a short break, and then I'd like to get back to you and talk a little bit about uh, treatment and some of the misinformation that's out there. Um, Sure. All right. And you're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds for our last segment, and we're chatting with uh, Dr. Alan Mayer. Dr. Mayer is a gynecologic surgeon, and he specializes in uh, GYN oncology. Um, Alan, we were talking a little bit about risk-diminishing procedures that can be performed. You mentioned tubal ligation. So does a fairly simple procedure like tubal ligation reduce the risk of ovarian cancer? Actually, we can't completely explain that except that more recent uh, G1 literature shows that some ovarian cancers actually start in the end of the fallopian tube. And so what we're postulating is if you remove the fallopian tube, um, that you could uh, prevent the development of ovarian cancer, yes. 
So that uh, has initially, we recognized it because of uh, epidemiologic literature that just looked at large numbers of women that had ovarian cancer and those that didn't and the ones with tubal ligations didn't develop it. But now we're discovering that, gee, it may be the removal of the fallopian tube. And so now when you have a hysterectomy, more recently when gynecologists do hysterectomies for benign indications, they'll remove the fallopian tube instead of leaving it in place. Wow. Okay. That's important information. Now, there's been some misinformation out there I, uh, that I think, and, and I want to re- confirm it with you. I mean, if you turn on the TV now, you're going to get an ad. If you use talcum powder and had ovarian cancer, you're entitled to. Is there clearly an association between the use of talcum powder and ovarian cancer? No, that's and now it's become an old wives' tale. I think um, it was <clears throat> years ago listed as one of the risk factors, um, but I, I think as we learn more about the genetics of cancer, we recognize that the women who develop ovarian cancer, at least a quarter of them, have an identifiable gene mutation. So they have a gene that put them at risk, and then there probably is some environmental factor, and I think that's where that talcum powder theory came about because they thought, well, maybe if, if you're um, irritating the surface of the ovary by allowing talcum powder to migrate through the cervix and the uterus, fallopian tubes, and then ultimately to the ovary, it could uh, initiate a cancer. But the literature has not really proven that, and it's actually been dropped as a risk factor in, in uh, scientific literature. But I guess people are still calling the 800 number or, or whatever. Well, I, I think lawyers are looking for opportunities. Sure. Yeah, is what I would think. So, I, so, so women who have used talcum powder should not be sitting around worried that they're going to develop ovarian no, cancer. Okay, they, that, that isn't a risk factor. No. Can the gene mutation be identified? Is oh, that absolutely so? It's identifiable in people who might be susceptible to it. That's correct, and it's a very easy test to do. To be honest, it's just a blood draw or a, a, buc- a smear of your uh, of your mouth. The, lining of your mouth. And uh, the real issue with gene screening or two features. Firstly, it's expensive. To, to do a, a complete screen is about three dollars $3,500. So uh, insurances don't readily uh, uh, allow you to order those tests unless there's a good indication. And so if Patients that are considering that need to have genetic counseling so that they can have their their family tree reviewed and uh, the numbers of cancer cases that would put them at risk um, should be documented. And then they'll also get a lot of information from that about if they are positive, what that means, and if they're negative, what that means. I mean, imagine if you had a mother, and that was your only risk factor. Your mother had ovarian cancer, and she passed away, and, and she didn't have the gene mutation, but now she's passed away, and you didn't know that. And you, and you go through uh, risk reduction surgery at the age, uh, which means you remove your ovaries and tubes uh, before age 40. You're prematurely menopausal, and that has a lot of side effects. So we don't want to expose that to women unless it's really necessary, unless it's required. Uh- just in talking about the treatment now, are there new treatments for ovarian cancer? Yeah, 
that's really been an exciting part of practicing oncology in the past two decades. We're learning so much about uh, treatments and uh, quality of life issues. We're focused on quality of life and symptom management. We have so many new drugs that have uh, different pathways and, and ways to impact on uh, the cure of ovarian cancer. Uh, I tell patients that I meet that we cure probably 30 to 40% of women with ovarian cancer now. Uh, those women who don't get cured, uh, we can uh, keep them alive and around and functioning with good quality of life. Many women, for as long as a decade or longer, they're on and off chemotherapy, they're on and off treatment because they're not cured, but they're around and enjoying their lives. So it's been exciting to practice in the last two decades because we've developed so many new treatments and so many new drugs, and, and there's really a lot more hope than there used to be decades ago. That's a dramatic improvement of 30 to 40% cure rate. Uh, it's something I wasn't familiar with. Yeah. I'm going to shift gears on you a little bit because you mentioned that it is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. And, you know, we hear about the HPV vaccination uh, for young people uh, as they're becoming sexually active. Has that clearly had a benefit in reducing cancer of the cervix? So I think it's too early to tell that it will decrease the incidence of cervical cancer. Um, in, in the United States, that's not a very commonly diagnosed uh, cancer. There's only about uh, 13,000 new cases per year and only about 4,000 deaths per year from cervical cancer. That's primarily because we have pap smears available and, and diagnosis of HPV-related illnesses available here, and uh, we can treat those and prevent the cancer from developing. Uh, internationally, cervical cancer is the leading cancer cause of death in women internationally and in developing nations because they don't have that available. So I mean, that is a real crime that in the United States you can have it prevented and internationally it's just not available. And so vaccines really we're hoping will diminish the incidence of or the spread of uh, HPV virus that's sexually transmitted and um, is definitely the cause of cervical cancer. Yeah, we're hoping that the vaccines will impact on that. Uh, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, people are listening to the program who may be genetically vulnerable, um, may never have seen a, a gynecologic oncologist. Um, how do people get in touch with you and your very active group at St. Francis? Yeah. There are, so in Hartford, we're pretty blessed. We have uh, excellent gynecologic oncology services at UConn, Hartford Hospital, the Hospital Central Connecticut, and at St. Francis, we have four gynecologic oncologists. Um, our practice is in the uh, St. Francis Comprehensive Women's Health Center, and I'll give you my phone number in a second, but I also want to tell patients that want information about this that they can uh, go onto the National Cancer Institute website or they can call 1-800-4-CANCER, and they'll get information from the National Cancer Institute, the American Cancer Society. There's also the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition that's available to them. If they want the websites or the numbers, they can reach it through our office, and I'll give you that number now. It's 860-714-7945. Or just call the St. Francis main number and ask for the Comprehensive Women's Health Center and ask for a gynecologic oncologist. If there's any question in a, a female's health care, and she's not feeling like she's getting the right answer, that she's not comfortable that they're reaching a solution, she should reach out and see somebody either as a second opinion just to make sure that there isn't something that's being overlooked. 
Alan, thank you for taking time today. Uh, I know you're on call and, and really taking time to do this and get this information out there. And thank you for your years of service, not just to the military, but to our community. It was really my pleasure, Tony. Thank you for asking me. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, that was Dr. Alan Mayer, who I uh, wanted to thank for his time today. Also want to take time to thank uh, Leah Moon and Jackie Prosick from Connecticut uh, Autism Families Connecticut uh, for coming on and spending time with us. Uh, next week, we are scheduled to not have a program because of UConn football, but you never know. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olko, who's been on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up on WTIC, we have Garden Talk with Len. Uh, please remember to help save lives. This is important. I want to make sure everybody knows you can get out there and save someone's life today. And do that by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You go to www.registerme.org. I also want to, again, make sure that we remember in our thoughts and prayers uh, all of our countrymen and people in the Caribbean who are being affected by this natural, this natural disaster of Hurricane Irma and other weather changes that are coming up. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.